Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. About three years ago, I attended a conference called the National Hispanic Prayer Breakfast in DC, which consisted of meeting and listening to senators and congressmen talk about faith and advocacy. At the time, I was very impressed by these politicians who seemed to have all the right words for social and political progress. They sounded so educated. In previous years, Barack Obama spoke at the breakfast and the year I went, I heard from Vice President Mike Pence at the time. Now, to be honest, I don't remember any speeches or any prayers from these politicians. The only thing I still remember years later is when one of the senators commented, don't let the blazer or suit fool you. Life happens to everyone. Now, maybe you're grappling with a diagnosis right now, a financial struggle. Maybe you're looking for a job or just the right job or maybe you have too many jobs and you're burnt out. During this time, our Asian brothers and sisters are facing heartbreaking violence and they must experience social unrest and pressures in their daily life. Maybe some of you are facing loneliness or coming to terms with the consequences of past mistakes. If we're not on the receiving end of being hurt, We are actually the ones who do harm to others. Life happens to everyone. The pandemic has taught us that COVID-19 happened to everyone. There was no escaping it. We all had to experience isolation and loss of some sort, whether it was loss through death or finances or relationships, or maybe it was just feeling unresolved pain from the past. There is simply no bypassing the struggles in life. But at the same time, there's also something so beautiful about life that no matter what happens, there is this fundamental blessedness as Ian has taught us in past weeks, this fundamental blessedness about life. We have all experienced it at one point, regardless of what was happening around us. It is such a gift to wake up with breath in our lungs, even this day. The spirit is alive and working, even though we're all in separate locations, and that's amazing. But yes, the common denominator for us all is the inescapable question we must all face at some point. How do we live while suffering? How do we live in exile? when the return to how things were or how things should be seems hopeless or even highly improbable? How do we live through the experience of loss when loss itself is inevitable? The pain must simply run its course. How do we live if it's not gonna get better for a long time? Imagine this, Jeremiah is in confinement imprisoned in the palace as the Babylonians invade Jerusalem. He is in the midst of captivity, 
witnessing and experiencing this devastating loss. It's the kind of situation where it's gonna get worse before it gets better. And Jeremiah knows this, which is why he prophesies Babylonian triumph and capture of King Zedekiah for an indefinite period. Jeremiah is prophesying utter destruction with no end in sight, because this is the very outcome the Lord had predicted as a consequence for the sins of Israel and Judah. As we see, this is what's happening now. The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. There is war going on. This story plunges down into devastation before turning upwards in hope. So where is the hope in this story? Where can we locate it? Where is the turning point? And is there even a turning point in this series of events? Destruction of Jerusalem is still underway, but there is a radical shift and the shift is in something God asks Jeremiah to do in the midst of all this chaos. Jeremiah is held captive in a prison cell and the Lord tells him to buy a field, to buy land, just as the army is invading Jerusalem. But not just any field. Jeremiah buys a farm outside the city land that is currently occupied by Babylonian troops. Now, for anyone's perspective, this is foolish since the land has absolutely no economic value. It's a waste. It seems completely pointless. But just as destruction unfolds as an unstoppable trajectory, Jeremiah exemplifies one very crucial aspect about God's word. It is not bound by hopelessness or irreversible pain or loss. The word of God is not bound by our pessimism or our suspicion. It is not bound by Jeremiah's physical or spiritual confinement either. Jeremiah only has one perspective, impending doom. That's his message. He's confined not only in prison, but he's also confined to his bleak message, unable to see anything other than hopelessness. But it's in this moment that Jeremiah buys the land while the city is under siege. To our eyes, this hardly seems like the right time. Yet this is exactly when the Lord makes such an absurd request of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah publicly buys the field from his cousin. This is a legal and binding action. Jeremiah makes a bold move without even really knowing why he just bought the field, especially considering whatever good would turn from it would take a long time. But Jeremiah buys a piece of land anyway, with a very, very distant hope that houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now this is hard to imagine considering the current state of the city and land. There is simply no quick end to exile. Yet the Lord orders Jeremiah to do the unthinkable. Though the circumstances have yet to change even the least bit, Jeremiah's act of blind faith itself has already begun to overturn the story. His movement towards a distant hope would become the very thing to sustain the people in dark years to come. 
We now enter into Jeremiah's confusion about what just happened as he directs a prayer to God in the center of this story, a prayer to the all-powerful creator of the heavens and the earth, to the one sovereign over all of history. From the start, he proclaims, nothing is too hard for you. And while he does remember all the Lord's salvific acts, signs and wonders in Egypt and the liberation of the Israelite nation and the Lord's steadfast love for all generations. What Jeremiah is more surprised about is when he reflects on the same God who also repays the guilt of parents into the laps of their children after them. This same God who does not allow sin to go unchecked, a God of justice, Jeremiah recalls a God who is watchful of humanity and their ways, repaying those according to their deeds. And the key part is that this land, the land that is being destroyed, is the one the Lord had given to them. Jeremiah knows how the Israelites did not follow God's teaching. They did nothing of what God had commanded. At this point, Jeremiah says, see, the siege ramps have been cast up against the city to take it, and the city, faced with sword, famine, and pestilence, has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of God is happening just as God said. So if anything, Jeremiah is confused by the good news from this purchase of land. Suddenly, in the midst of a fulfilling prophecy, an inevitability of which the prophet had been proclaiming for the past 13 years. Good news is revealed to him that is supposed to signal a future hope in return from exile. Now, Jeremiah is certainly a man of prayer, but surely this prayer is motivated by uncertainty as to what he has just done. Why should God shift ground now? It's so far removed from the current circumstances that the good news is almost unsettling. We've all said those prayers to God where it feels foolish to hope for anything better. And I'm sure we all have that friend that loves to wallow and dwell on all the negatives, or maybe you are that friend. There's nothing worse than someone telling you how things can get better while you're in the middle of a mess or trying to help you see the bright side of things. Jeremiah expected everything to just keep getting worse. And yet the good news was in the ruin and destruction, not beyond it or in spite of it. The purchase of land in the very land that was being destroyed is where Jeremiah finds hope. After all the Israelites' mess-ups, Jeremiah prays dumbfoundedly, yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The Lord echoes Jeremiah's own words in the form of a rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for God? Who else or what other power can turn utter destruction, loss, and despair into deeply flourishing vineyards and fields. There are parts of the larger narrative that Jeremiah cannot see. The Lord says to him, you, you're gonna lose before you win. 
The Chaldeans will destroy the city down to every last house that made an offering to a false god. Because Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil. God taught, but they did not listen. All this is true, just as Jeremiah previously said in his prayer. And yet, for the Lord, nothing is too difficult. It doesn't say nothing is too difficult except this situation or except for this person or with this pain or regarding this particular loss. It's easy to assume that our struggles are so far beyond God's saving grace or that anything can be done about them at all. But nothing is too difficult. Nothing is beyond the reach of God's redemptive power. Even when we ourselves turn our backs from God, even when we lose hope and have resigned ourselves to a life defined by loss, nothing is too difficult. What does this word mean? What is something too difficult? This Hebrew word only makes sense in light of our weakness, our limited knowledge and perspective as humans. This word means something is so difficult that it's absolutely extraordinary, too wonderful to understand. In the words of Job after he faces horrible loss, he acknowledges his short-sighted view, saying, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know, or, when the psalmist imagines being formed in his mother's womb, he describes, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. This sense of the wonderful inspires awe, surpassing what our feeble minds can understand. The realm of the too difficult is what is beyond one's power to do. The wonderfulness of God is actually the centerpiece of this story of loss because it shows how God turns judgment into redemption. And this is incomprehensible. The too difficult is everything we don't know. So just when you think you have life all figured out and maybe you're a little pessimistic like me, here's what I find helpful. There's an image that will be shown on the screen. So within the circle is everything you or I could know about how our lives could unfold and whatever our struggles might be. It's filled with our anxieties and sufferings, maybe till it's overflowing. It's everything we worry about, everything that could go wrong, which is a lot of things. You could think of Jeremiah's state of confinement as not only in prison physically, but also a confinement to his limited knowledge as a human within this circle too. Though he certainly understood certain aspects of God, he still didn't have the full picture and everything beyond the circle. So imagine this circle stands within an infinite space, which is the white beyond the circle. That is everything we don't know, everything that God does. So even if everything looks bleak from your point of view, there is still so much more out there that could be good even if you strongly doubt it. There's just too much we don't know to completely lose hope. 
Because how do you know that in the infinite realm of God's wonder, there isn't some glimmer of hope? When we consider the too difficult, what is high and unattainable, these are the places that God inhabits. When we reach our limit of too difficult is a place to allow God to work. God's work is not bound by our tiny circles. And we can make our move toward hope as Jeremiah did. Jeremiah's prayers say that God is great in counsel, mighty indeed. The Lord surpasses everyone in wise planning to the extent that it sounds foolish to us. Yet God's sovereign decisions time and time again leave human expectations in complete disarray. So now the Lord redefines a city that is being destroyed into a place where the Lord will bring the exiles back to safety. God will reestablish his everlasting covenant once more in the midst of ruins, never to draw back again from doing good. The Lord says, I will rejoice in doing good to them and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This covenant is without conditions, an everlasting relationship established with grace. After all that has happened, this new relationship is the impossible, something too wonderful for us to comprehend. Friends, sometimes before it gets better, it might actually get worse. It might get a lot darker before the light comes. But there is something about how Jeremiah emerges as an example of faithful obedience and hope in the midst of captivity. Jeremiah acts in ways that embody and announce a new future filled with hopefulness. By acting in this faithful obedience, Jeremiah might have still been physically confined in prison, but because of the word of God, he was no longer confined spiritually and was able to embody a future too wonderful to even imagine. Here's the thing, God didn't actually change anything. What God asks Jeremiah to do is what elicits this hope. The hope is in your next move. Will you move with hope in the midst of ruin? Will you step out into the too difficult, into the too wonderful and allow yourself to be unsettled by the good news? I can't think of anything more unsettling than the good news of Jesus dying on a cross. The New Testament says, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Hope is no longer just out there somewhere, but planted in the very things we've discarded as pointless or a waste. Imagine if Jesus' death was actually the end. What if we thought the absence of Jesus' body meant the end of any hope at all? Our hope is in Jesus who told us where I am going, you cannot come. And yet that is the good news. The good news is summed up perfectly in the words of a wise theologian who wrote, along with Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, we then went to the tomb to mourn the loss of the one we thought could save our dreams.
But we found that we cannot even count on our plans to grieve because today we are startled to discover his tomb is empty. Jesus never stays where we leave him. Jeremiah couldn't even count on his own prophecy of doom and destruction either because God was already planning something beyond his circumstances, just like God would do through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah too was startled by the good news of God's request, of God's promise of future land restored in return of the exiles. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.